0: Hello and welcome to Talking True Crime. I am Mark Williams-Thomas, and on today's podcast, I'm joined by Darren Gee, a former Everton drug dealer after spending years behind jail in his part in a murder. More about this shortly, but before we speak to Darren, I wanted to just give you an update on a few cases making the news this week. In 1992, seven-year-old Nikki Allen, body mutilated, was found in an abandoned building. On the night Nikki was murdered, she'd gone with her mother to visit her grandfather in a run-down housing estate near the docks in Sunderland. She'd had a great evening, and she decided that she wanted to walk home on her own, not with her mother. So around 8.30, Nikki decided that she was going to leave her grandfather's address and set out on the short walk about 150 yards to her home address. She walked down a stairwell along a short corridor and out towards her house. She never made it home. Her, her mother returns home and doesn't find her. It results in a missing persons investigation. A huge police search began, and Nikki's shoes were found the next morning by her aunt. Nikki's body was then found. She'd been battered with a brick, stabbed 37 times in the chest and abdomen, abdomen and the night before, a witness comes forward saying they'd heard screams. A local man, George Heron, then 24, who lived on the same estate, was arrested. A blade and knife was recovered that matched the wounds to Nikki's body. Blood spatters were found on her shoes and clothing, but at the time, Forensic was not able to link it to Nicky's. His sister told the police that on his return home, Heron had gone to the bathroom where he washed both himself and his clothes. All the evidence was circumstantial. After three days of questioning, Heron confessed to killing Nikki. He'd previously denied it 120 times. The trial judge heard all the evidence and decided that of seven of the 12 interviews were inadmissible because officers had used oppressive methods to obtain the confessions. After a six week trial, the judge directed the jury to deliver a verdict of not guilty. Heron was given a change of identity and moved out of Sunderland. That was as a result of a huge backlash. In fact, in the court, at least 20 members of the public had to be held back with their anger at the result of him being found not guilty. So that was where it hung for almost 30 years. Her mother, Nikki's mother, was determined to catch the killer. The police at the time said that Heron was the man. They weren't looking for anyone else. They'd closed down their line of investigation entirely focused on Heron. But 30 years on and after tireless work by Nikki's mum, Sharon Henderson, she set about trying to get the case reopened. She wanted to use advances in DNA technology and as a result of that, she contacted the coroner wanting Nikki's body to be exhumed. She asked for the police support and they said no. After all, they were convinced that Heron was the murderer. She wanted to test the DNA specifically in relation to the blood spatter to see if it was Nikki's DNA. Heron was right; he never killed Nikki. It was, in fact, another man—a man called David Boyle- Boyd. This is the moment that David Boyd is arrested by the police.
1: Yeah, I focused it there. No, no, I'm from, ah, from right. the police, Come over have a Yeah, yeah. Cheers. Could you do the favour and just knock the telly off for a second? All right. Could you do the favour and just knock the telly off just so you can hear what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Thanks, yeah. Dude, this is I'm Terry, this is yeah. Marty. We're part yeah. of the team that's reinvestigating the murder of Nicky Allen. Yeah. Okay. Part of that investigation has uh, led us to suspect that you may have had some involvement in that. Okay. So, I have no I'm, a, in so it, right? I'm arresting you on suspicion, okay, of that offence. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your offence if you do not mention, when questioned, something which you later lie in court. Anything yeah. you do say may be given in evidence. Just, just leave your phone there. For-
0: That's the moment that Boyd is arrested by the police as a result of them reopening the investigation as a direct result of DNA tests being carried out on hundreds, thousands of people living in that area. Let me give you the background. Boyd was 25 at the time of the murder and his partner used to babysit for Nikki. He lived on the same floor of maisonettes as Nikki's parents. And it does beg the question, why was he not considered a suspect? Because he'd previous convictions. In 1986, he approached four children aged 8 to 10, grabbing one of them and asking for a kiss, and in 1999, he was convicted of indecently assaulting a 9-year-old girl. Yes. Any major investigation will tell you, and I've worked on many of them, will always tell you that actually there's a point to which, once you've looked at all the obvious suspects, you look at those sex offenders, particularly when it's a crime against a girl. When Sarah Payne was abducted, I worked on the avenue in terms of Surrey Police's investigation, and one of the tasks we were given on behalf of Sussex Police for Mutual Aid was to go and visit, over a weekend, every single sex offender that was on our patch, and we did that because we wanted to be able to eliminate every single one of those sex offenders from that line of inquiry. Exactly the same here. Here's a man, Boyd, living in the same maisonette as a grandfather with convictions of indecent assault, yet he did not feature at all. They were convinced that Heron was the man. Anyway, Boyd has now been found guilty of the murder of Nikki, and he will be sentenced on the 23rd of May. Let me move now to the next case. On the 7th of May, police were called to a location in Tower Hamlets in London as a result of a complaint that a woman had been attacked by a dog. Police attended and a suspect with the dog was tasered and two dogs shot in front of screaming witnesses. This is a moment the incident was caught on camera. Like that it's no it's kind of music, right. We obviously can't show you the rest of that video. It did result in the two dogs being shot. Police released a statement after that incident saying that the aggressive behaviour of the dogs were found to be of considerable concern and posed a significant threat to the officers who attended the scene. The pet owner, Louis Turnbull, has now been charged with dangerous dog offences, and the matter has also been referred to the police watchdog for investigation. Now, let me move on to my guest. Darren Gee was jailed in 2006 for ordering the murder of 36-year-old David Regan, shot dead outside the Old Swan car wash in May 2004. He's been reported as having said that uh, Mr. Regan had ordered a bungled hit on a individual, and that was carried out by a former SAS soldier, Darren Waterhouse. In re- as a result of that, also Darren's brother was injured. However, it later emerged that Waterhouse had been hired by a drug dealer called William Moore. After Darren's release, he's said to have been very open that actually he wasted his life. He regretted his involvement in serious crime and has now changed. Since leaving prison, he's changed his life around. Today, he commands a devoted following on social media, using his platform to raise awareness and the fight against knife crime. So Darren, let's go back to your early days. You'll become quite notorious in terms of your criminality and what you've got up to and and there's no doubt that many would describe you as having had a colourful past and I think the evidence shows that. What got you into crime in the first place? Poverty. Poverty, right.
1: It all stems from being raised on a council estate, being raised by parents that weren't employed, and there was five brothers basically right. with a single mother and as soon as i was expelled from school i never really had anything so around 12 13 i was expelled from mainstream school and, and that just left me to my own devices left me wondering the, the estate i was brought up on and upon the estate There was a group of older lads that was smoking cannabis dealing class a drugs and because they were the only individuals around and i was by myself i sort of ended up on the pharynges of them them individuals
0: so your start really was being expelled from school and obviously being in a position where you then just wandered the streets you then Got involved with a local gang and they were very much involved in in dealing in drugs and then did you start using cannabis
1: well my first cannabis when i first experienced cannabis came from these group so i'm like 13 14 these lads are 20 21 and they've encouraged me to have a go over cannabis joints i've, I've, I've smoked the cannabis joints and went white I I had an adverse reaction off it, you know, took the knock off it. But then that was my little path into consuming cannabis on a regular basis. And once I became dependent, once I got the feel for the cannabis, I just wanted to be around the group because I know I'd get cannabis off the group.
0: Right. And how did it step up from... 13, 14, starting to, you know, obviously you were you were not going to school, you were using cannabis. Did you then start getting involved in other crimes, in stealing?
1: Yeah, well, where we lived, the vicinity is very close to Anfield's football ground. So every time there was a match day, you'd get a couple of thousand cars parking up around the estates and around the streets surrounding the football ground. So... We started stealing from the cars, you know, taking the CD players and the CD changes and stuff like that. I started earning the money through that way.
0: Quite easy to do. Did you ever get caught for that?
1: Yeah, I got caught, and then that's when I stopped um, stealing from cars and then moved on to other ways of making money, which was commercial burglaries. Right.
0: Right. So this is business properties, not domestic dwellings, but commercial no, not, business. Not domestic,
1: it's just um, like betting offices, off licences, public houses, places where there was cash, basically.
0: Right. And did you do this with other people? What, what was the drive behind doing this, other than the money?
1: And that's all it was, basically. When when we when we when we're stealing, obviously the cannabis. I ended up with a heavy dependence on cannabis. So if we didn't have money, we couldn't buy cannabis. If we didn't have money, we couldn't have clothes. If we didn't have money. Oh. So it was, it was a multitude of things, but the, the, the thing right through it all was poverty.
0: And how much cannabis were you using at this stage?
1: Well, back back when I was a kid, we didn't have access to the, the, the types of cannabis that the kids have got now. So these days, they've got access to high grade skunk weed, cali stuff like that. Back in the day, we had solids, which was like right. Lebanese, Moroccan black, squidgy black. So it was a different sort of um, dynamics of your life. But we, you know, we couldn't go a day without smoking cannabis.
0: Right. And who were you scoring that from? Was that from the bigger, the older lads that were with you?
1: The, the same, yeah, the same group that was already existed on the estate right
0: and so you changed to commercial burglaries did you get caught doing that
1: i got caught a few times done a little bit of jail for them um ended up going into the yp system a couple of times but my first my first time into the yp system was for a section 20 assault okay so just give me a bit
0: of details about that
1: yeah, so when we were kids, what they used to do in Liverpool, they used to have these kids' nightclubs, kids' nights. Right. So it was like under 18s, and I've been, I've been just ten and fifteen. I've been at a nightclub called um, Follows Fellows in the entry area, and I've had a bit of a na- bit of a name for myself, you know, because I always getting into fights, always causing trouble, so. A week before, I've had an argument with one lad. The week after, his older brothers have come. So his 18-year-old brothers have came into the club, asking where I am. I've tra- Where's Darren G? I've said he's in the toilet. As soon as they've gone the toilet, I've gone in behind one of them with a, um, a glass Coke bottle, which they used to sell at the time, yeah. and struck him down the face with it. So I was arrested, put in front of the youth court, And give them 15 months detained.
0: And what was was that all about? What what was was did you want to scare them? Did you want to, you know, do you want to hurt them?
1: Basically it was an um, it was the way it was brought up. You know, the attitude of my dad was if they're bigger than you pick something up and hit them. And because they were bigger than me, I picked something up and hit them. So my parents had a massive effect on how we behaved within communities how we was raised inside the house Hmm. you know the physical abuse the it sort of the way we couldn't let the frustrations out in the house we started letting it out in the community
0: and you know that's spot on darren because you know i've been doing a a tour for the last year in relation to my hunting killers book and one of the questions I often get asked at the end is it nature or nurture and and my experience tells me having worked in this field for a very long time uh, because of the amount of cases I've dealt with is that your environment that you grow up in dictates very often how you grow up and and you're saying exactly that so did was was home life as a child difficult
1: very difficult yeah there was money coming into the house but the money weren't going where it was meant to go it was going on drink and nights out for the mum and dad and right. the violence that drinks drink brings between partners or couples
0: was that violence between those two or to the children
1: it started with them too. so basically um me dad would absolutely batter me mum Eventually, me and one of my brothers started trying to stand up against my dad. And once we tried to stand up against him, his violent temper turned to us more than my mum.
0: And how old would you be when that started happening, you standing up to dad?
1: This is round. This is it's, That's basically why I got expelled from school. Right. Because of what was going on in the family house. It was proper damaging us. So mm. we, we used to get... Tied to the bed, whipped with belts.
0: Tied to the bed, what by your dad? Yeah, and then hit with a belt. Mm.
1: So that, that they were the they were the sort of regular beatings we received. Me and my younger brother Daniel.
0: And then how did that? So you obviously tried to stand up uh, and stop him from beating your mum up, and then he turned on you how did that go did you 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 obviously had to endure that for some period of time did that continue for a long time yeah it continued while he was
1: in the picture basically so we're we're basically getting beat up by a man continuously so that give us in the outside world so what you're a man you can only do what my dad's been doing to us for years it's not really going to make a difference so we started standing up to any man
0: what happened to your dad?
1: Well, he, he eventually, went, when I was in custody during my 15 months detained, he's thrown my mum out the top bedroom window and broke her back.
0: Bloody hell.
1: And that he threw him. her
0: out the top window and broke her back?
1: Yeah. She doesn't like to admit it, but he's pushed her out the window. It's only a second-floor window, but it's still a height. He's thrown her out that window. He'd been beating her up for years and years, but he's thrown her out that window, and she's landed on her back. And she's fractured her back in three places. The only thing that saved her was my mum had a bit of weight on her. So when she's landed, her weight sort of cushioned the blood. But that was like the end of the relationship of your life.
0: What happened to him?
1: Well, when it was later on on my big sentence, um, through his drink and his alcoholism, he ended up living in a one-bedroom flat in Liverpool and he formed a, a bout of epilepsy and he's been drunk one night, fell down the stairs, had an epileptic fit and died.
0: And I don't want to get too emotional in relation to this and obviously these are horrific things, but what do you think about your dad now?
1: I can't stand him. I don't I don't bat an eyelid about him, to be honest. He, he's... He's everything a parent shouldn't be. Mm. And that's where it starts, basically. It starts with the parenting, the parental guidance as you're a child. Everything they instill into you, you, do. you carry right through Absolutely. the rest of your life.
0: Absolutely. And what about mum?
1: I don't speak to my mother neither because there was a lot of, um, in my life, in my personal life, when, we was a, when I was a child, uh, a man appeared in my life called Uncle Danny, and this Uncle Danny, alongside me dad and a police officer, used to take me to a certain place, like a big old Victorian building, this office. And one day I woke up with three men in front of me, me pants are half down, I battled, um, ended up getting me arm broke, and my mum has always continuously, for years, as I was growing up, said it, Uncle Danny, Uncle Danny this. Now this big bald headed man in a suit just all of a sudden started appearing in our house and giving me mum fifty pound notes that we'd never seen before and you know, giving loads of money and I'd go we'd go to these places and then end up falling asleep possibly drugged in the car on the way up there. I've woke halfway up. I've woke up during one of these situations. So for years I've held these questions to my mum. And then I've just been lost into the care system. Went into the care system, went into the prison system, wearing at my mum's for years and years and years. Then got me long sentence. On on my long sentence, he had time to revisit everything that had been buried and I always had this nagging question, Who was Uncle Danny? And she'd always give me one version of events. So I've got out of custody and then I start asking her, who's Uncle Danny? And the story started changing and this, that. So it was quite obvious she was being lying to me all my life. And that sort of, that ended up with me going to the police I'm making a complaint for historical sexual abuse and all, all she said all she said at the end of it the police investigation was carried out and they come back to me and said everyone involved except for your mum is dead
0: well, they all she died, died who was uncle danny
1: uncle danny was dead yeah he was just this big fat boy yeah, the other fella Okay, so
0: did he it wasn't a wasn't a relation? He was. Oh, no, he, he wasn't job, a relation.
1: My mum changed the story to, oh, he was a vicar from Crosby, and then oh, he was this, and it was just you know when your mum's lying to you. Mm. So it was what it was. Um, I had, so have you uh,
0: ever named him?
1: No. The police did officer you know? I found out later on is still alive, and he's wow. training. He's training at under sixteen football team, close to side, and has been for years. So there's nothing you can do once the police close the door on you.
0: So why why have they not pursued that matter then?
1: I'm not sure. You know,
0: I were they able to establish that? Were there other victims?
1: It was well. What happened is, um, I've been asking my mum all the time about this thing. And when I've been in prison, I was receiving like depositions and legal documents, and there was too many of them, so I'd send them all to me mum. And my mum would put them in the attic. Now, it sort of I forgot about it, but then when I've got out of custody, I went to me mum's and went, "I need to get my stuff out of there." I've got up there, and as I'm looking for my documentation, I come across a shoebox, and in the shoebox you've got social services documents relating to me from years and years and years before and in that box there was a photograph two photographs and one was of me sat in the chair um, um where they what they done when they panicked when they've done my arm put my uniform because it was meant to be in school on this day put my school uniform back on me sat me in the chair and took a picture of me so when i came across that polaroid picture it just brought everything back, and then that's when I started questioning my mum about Uncle Danny's situation, and it came to the head where I had to ring the police. I went to the Hailwood, um they have got a suite in Halewood Police Station where yeah. he brings people and I interview them on video. I've gone there, went through the process. There was two photos There was one of me in the chair. And then there was one of the tall black lad. Tall black lad was stood in the doorway with his uniform on. I've gone to the police. I've given them the documents and I've given them these photos. When I've had the documents and the photos returned, the photo of the black lad is not there.
0: Tragic, tragic. Well, maybe we we talk off camera in relation to that. I I want to take you back to you know, the chronology in terms of what's happened. So you're committing burglaries, you go and spend your first period of time in, in youth detention. How was that?
1: It was shocking me. It was very shocking. um, So I was just turning 15 and I got 15 months detained, which was rare. I'd never been in a youth court before. It was my first sentence, but I got slammed. I got 15 months detained. I went to a place called Wellington House, which was like a borstal type institution it had 120 young offenders in there it had six dorms with 22 a dorm and just in the dorms you had you had staff coming in of night dragging young lads away and doing sexual abuse towards them you were treated you know i ended up in segregation in there for three months straight So it was a a very scary um, situation for me. Like it is for any kid that gets dragged into an institution of... So, for example, every Sunday, what they used to do, they'd have a big dining hall, and then you'd have a little corridor, and then, like, association room. Every Sunday, they used to line us up in the dining hall and transfer us through. But as you were going through the corridor, you'd have to strip down. And you'd have to stand up, turn around, and they'd be documenting all the bruises on your body. So it was a very scary
0: place. Age 15? Yeah. Shocking. So you come out of there, and uh, I mean, some would say that gave you the taste, or others would say it drove them to not commit crime. That didn't work for you, did it, because you carried on?
1: Well, I, I don't think they were built for rehabilitation back then. No. You know, it was just holders. Um, and what it done for me is it sent me on that revolving door. Yeah. So when you got... when and I think
0: there's a lot to be said about that, Darren. Sorry to interrupt. But, you know, when I was in the police... One of the things, one of my early roles, I, I went into a specialist team and I set up a youth diversionary policy in Guildford, in Surrey. And the reason being is I identified that there was a lot of children coming into the criminal justice system, primarily coming from disrupted homes. But they were getting on that criminal justice system conveyor belt. And once they're on it, it was incredibly difficult to get it off. And what I was trying to do is at the first point of coming into the criminal justice system, so the first time they're in custody, could we do more to prevent them and educate them so that they don't go back on that path or continue on that path? And it did have a a relative impact. We certainly helped a number of young people. And I think that's so true, isn't it? Once you're in that criminal justice system, it's very difficult to get out of it.
1: Well, it creates a mindset in you. So although it's harsh, although it's volatile, although it's very uh, regimental in there, It gives you routine. Mm. It gives you three meals a day. It gives you people to speak to. So when you're going from that dynamics of incarceration, then you're just released. Your your routine goes, you you feel a lot of things. So when you're committing crime and then you go in, come out, go in, come out, initially it might have been a deterrent. But now it's jail. I can handle that. It doesn't matter. So you continue to commit crime, knowing quite well when you get caught, you're going to prison, but it's not a deterrent.
0: So how did it start to get more serious for you? You come out, you've obviously doing time in relation to the burglaries, but things start ranking up for you. What do you start doing?
1: Well, we're continuing to commit commercial burglaries, but starting to earn a lot of money, you know, because at the time we were doing um off licenses like threshers, and mm. back in the day you didn't need a second card to use an electricity card you used to go into the off licenses buy a little blue card, slip it in your machine so we'd end up making thousands and thousands because we'd get you packages of them and right. we started getting this materialistic lifestyle, the best clothes, the best trainees, weed every day. So we were just on this continuous path of greed, if you like. We ended up going from, because the off licenses all of a sudden developed direct alarms. So it made them extra difficult for us to get away with. So we, we ended up going for fruit machines in public houses. We went through that period for so long, but we, out of a year, we'd be spending six months of that year in prison, and it was only you know we'd get out, and the the lads off the lads who started participating in drugs never seemed to be going prison. But mm-hmm. during that during that process, we're volatile due to, to our upbringing. So although we're commercial burgling and stuff like this were participating in violence against other groups in the area, getting a reputation for violence, becoming quite notorious for the violent af- aspect of us. So everyone didn't like us, especially the elders, because we were harming their youth that they were selling drugs for. So do you understand? Right.
0: Yeah. So, you, so you, would you, you start, say that you start, I mean, that sounds like gang on gang. Did you? Would you describe yourself as belonging to a gang?
1: No, a group of brothers.
0: Group of brothers, right.
1: That's what it used to be like back in the day. It never used to be this gang, that gang, that gang. In Liverpool, it used to be that family, that family, that family.
0: Right. So you were committing the crimes obsensely with your brothers and others. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah. We were were committing these burglaries, getting the money, buying our Christmas clothes, our Easter clothes, You know, just looking after each other because we were poor, if you like. Mm. But it brought a lot of envious from the drug dealers. We weren't dealing drugs. We were doing other crime and earning sometimes better money than them. So the friction kicked in. We'd end up damaging a few of them. But they was always being controlled by the older group. So when the time came for us to say, hang on, we're doing too much jail here, we need to tap into what they're doing. Right. Them, who's always control the trade, because we've been upsetting them for years by harming their dealers. They didn't wanna they didn't want to give us the drugs. So we never we weren't able to tap into the drug trade. Right. So we used our violence again and started kidnapping their drug dealers. They so kidnapping
0: help. high level, medium level? I mean, who were you kidnapping?
1: At the time they were quite high level because the drug traders only really just kicked in, if you like, and there was only certain yeah. individuals that were this. So if we if we took say we took a lad called Carl, kidnapped him, took his money, took his watch, took all his drugs off him. All them drugs would belong to that high-ranking gang that right. given them. So we'd have that high-ranking gang searching for us because we took their grafter.
0: So you kidnap them. You were off the streets in the back of a van, take them to an, a warehouse or an empty house, and hold on to them. What How do you do it?
1: So I'll give you one occasion. So we we, we don't we have done about six or seven of them before we ended up getting our own drugs and moving in that, in that direction. But what we do, we'd have to get we'd have to get rid of the drugs to someone. And there was a drug dealer who kept his mouth shut. And every time we robbed someone of their drugs, this drug dealer would buy them. So mm-hmm. we'd go we'd go around the area, we took PS4, we'd would ring them out, we would get someone to ring them out for drugs as soon as he turned up pull him into a car, take him away, strip him naked in a field and battered him with scaffolding bars until he told us where the stash was. That's that's something what we'd do. And then we'd go and get his stash, take that thing, take that stash to there. But it got round that we were doing a bit too many of them. No one, it's it dried up basically. So the only individual he had left to rob was the drug dealer that had been buying all their drugs. When we kidnapped them and took the drugs to this one, this one trusted mm-hmm. us. So it was he was the last one we done. We rang him out, confiscated everything off him. He snitched. He said we kidnapped him and took legit money. When in reality, we took drugs. Ended up in prison for about eight months, on remand for that. Got released. And then we just decided we need to get into the game somehow. Somehow. Done one more move, got a bit of money, and invested into drugs, and then that's when, that's when we started flowing if you like
0: And so, when you say invest into drugs, I mean, tell me what level this is, and and yeah, you know.
1: this is low level. This, low level when right. I say low level, you've got to understand the dynamics. um Street level is ten times more volatile. Yeah, than the business level in drug dealing.
0: So you were going street level. You were buying from a supplier, and then you were you had mules that were selling it out to individuals on the streets.
1: Yeah. So we'll we'll, we'll jump forward to two um, thousands, and that's when we started really tapping in, um, because because we become over the years consistently committing acts of violence. We had a bit of a notorious name. No one could fuck with us. And if you did, you were getting cut up or, or whatever. Eventually, we ended up being trusted by a certain group within the city who would give us as much drugs as we wanted, as long as we paid them. Right. So we ended up on the Grisdale estate, which is where we were raised, born. We ended up getting into a dispute with um, another group from the Kirkdale area. And that, that started basically because during this process, my younger brother ended up with an addiction of crack cocaine. Right. And he fell off the path of what we was on. So he was running around robbing people, kicking front doors and taking what he could. Right, And on this one occasion, what he's done, he's gone and, He's gone through a front door of a, um, a very notorious criminal called Michael Wright. He's kicked his front door in and took 15 grand from out of his house. Back in the day, it's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Michael Wright's found out. But around this time, I'm an associate of Michael Wright. Right. So for Daniel not to be seriously hurt, I've said to Michael i'll wear that off you give me the swag i'll shift the swag and but it it just went too far ended escalating people were getting kidnapped getting their knees shot in and getting their houses burned down and it just went scatty
0: and it went that bad so there was there was uh you know guns involved there was there was violence not just in terms of fists there was you know life potentially life-threatening violence burning yeah, houses
1: it, it was it, it ended up with fatalities later on but in in 2000s we we started becoming organized the touch so we'd always been disorganized no leader of the group we're just out there making money doing what we could to make mm-hmm. money Come two thousands, early two thousands, there was an element of organisation kicking in within. Who
0: was the leader? Did you you become the leader?
1: Well, that's basically. I ended up at the front. I was the one with the brains who was on the money thing, and knew when to use me violence. So,
0: and what were you making? The, what money? What term? What what kind of amount of money were you making?
1: Well, you've got to, you've got to understand. So basically, it got to the point where. Um, the police were all over us. Now, the the usual way of dealing drugs was back then. You'd have a phone. Yeah. The customer would ring the phone. You'd go and meet them on any street corner and give them the bits.
0: Yeah. So you had loads of burner phones that people would contact you on, and you would go and meet them and. and
1: get well, them. Basically, I started on a pedal bike. Yeah. With half ounce of brown and half ounce of white and I chopped that up into 10 pound bits and I'd point 3 the brown and I'd point 2 the white and I wouldn't make much profit but I'd be, because the I was doing point 2s craft and everyone else was doing point 1 craft for a tenner I stole mm. the market you know undercut mm. everyone I mm, okay. got me phone ringing at yeah. the same time it got me loads of punters from different areas and because I was getting other people's punters coming to me them other people weren't happy so there was a lot of friction kicking in it got to the point where we'd get a kilo of brown a kilo of white chop the brown to point twos chop the white chop the white to point twos chop, to, chop the brown to point threes and would distribute it so for example an ounce of brown would stand me 275 and I'd cut it to 570. But yeah. I'd be doing six or seven ounces a day.
0: Right.
1: So, so it I, became
0: a, a successful, you know, mini business at that stage.
1: Yeah, it was getting there. It was flying. We ended, It got to the point where we had people traveling from Wales. And because they're from Wales, um, if I had an ounce of brown in Liverpool, which stood me two seven five, depending on the purity, three twenty five at the most. At them in them days, in Wales, so I could get that ounce in Liverpool and I could chop it into four quarters, and I'd get five hundred pounds for a quarter in Wales.
0: Okay, so and then the rest
1: basically was profit.
0: And did you ever worry about? At this stage getting caught for that did you fear for your own life i mean you're a big lad were you big back then
1: i've always been heavy bonus yeah. i've always been i was a lot smaller because he had a, yeah. a way of eating smoking weed to survive and be like so you, your appetite goes after so long yeah but it got to the point where um the police were all over us i it got to the point where i wasn't on the bike no more I took a step back. I just have the phone and then I'd have workers running around doing the stuff. But it got to the point where the police were dragging them off the bikes, choking them till they spat the drugs out, charging Mm -hmm. them, getting the phones off them, you know, doing all stuff, smashing the car windows, dragging out the car. So we got to the point where we said, you know what, we're losing too much. There's too many soldiers going into prison. We haven't got many left. It got to the point where we just said, you know what, fuck the phones off. Let's all just stand on the Grysdale estate. So then we started using the Grysdale estate as like a base of operation. And we'd have kids stood at the bottom of the estate all day. Every time you see a police car, we'd all hide in the shadows. So when the police go past, we wouldn't be visible. We mm-hmm. got to the point where it became a 24 hour drug dealing hotspot where you could get anything. And it was in a pivotal point it was in a pivotal position because where we was based, you had the red light district on the bottom road, you had pure um, drug addicts in the area anyway. We were smack bang in the middle of Norris Green, Croxteth, Kensington, yeah. Kirkdale. And because we had the biggest bits, so the other grafters were still on the phones. And what you'd see is they're they're addicts. They'd ring them and then they'd be waiting on a street corner for 15, 20 minutes to get the hit. Whereas if they were scoring off us, they could take a little five-minute walk as if they go and come onto our estate and go off the estate with their drugs in hand. So we were smashing it. And then because we were smashing it in that way, the police attention came with it. And then when when the firearms incidents and all this type of stuff started kicking in, once the general public become d- in danger, the police really pay attention to you.
0: Mm. How easy was it in those days? I'm, I'm going to talk in a minute in relation to the murder in May 2004 of David Regan. But prior to that, how big and how easy was it to get hold of firearms?
1: Back then, you couldn't really, you know, you had to go through um, through certain mm. families within the city to get. So it didn't matter where about you was in the city. You would be getting your, your drugs off a certain family in that area. It wasn't everyone free all the way it is now.
0: Right. So and there was Through that of... family, that was the only way that family yeah. would have the network connections, and yeah, and then so... you you'd rent the gun and give the gun back.
1: No, you'd buy it or did lend it, depending on who your enemy was. So the the um, going back to the Grysdale estate, at one we we used to pay our we used to give every grafter who was working for us five hundred pounds guaranteed every Friday night. And there was like 15 people being paid 500 pound every Friday night and that's the level we got to right. when we started having this trouble with Michael Wright you know the debt had been paid over what Danny had done we'd split up and went on our own little drug dealing route and they were unhappy because we started taking their customers so it just kicked in again right and Michael Wright had had a problem with another family called the Farleys, a notorious family from Liverpool. But he was gay, and he took the piss out of the Farleys and he took the piss out of everyone else. But when he's turned on us, we've had the attitude that we gained growing up. Who the fuck do you think you are? You've got two arms, two legs. We'll have it with you. So we've had it with him. Now, for years, the Farleys have been hating on us because we've been kidnapping their drug dealers. But the minute we started going against mikey wright they seen the opportunity to give us what we needed to go against their enemy mikey wright so right we started getting access to firearms
0: then and talk to me about the murder of david Regan. what do you want to know so i mean the reports are that that, that was ordered by you um and, and I think it was, it was a, there was, was there some confusion around what that potentially related to?
1: Well, we can't speak about the murder of David Regan without speaking about the murder of Craig Barker. Okay.
0: That's Tell me about the, that.
1: That's where they all stemmed. So Craig Barker was an innocent young man, never participated in any violence. He, he trained an under 12 football team. He was only 18 himself but this is what he he wanted to be a football coach he loved his football during that period with the with the rights where we're having friction with the rights within liverpool you've got families connected to families and families connected to families so at the higher level all these families like the daughter of that family will be married to the son of that family And that connects these criminal families, if you like to understand. And that's where William Moore comes into the picture. Right. So um, it is what it is. We're doing what we're doing. The graph's bouncing. William Moore's being in jail while we're going through this process. He was sent to prison in Birmingham for 12 years for being arrested with 10 kilograms of brown on the motorway. So he's gone into custody during this period, but his family is still out doing what they do. Um, we started getting into friction with William Moore's younger brother called John Moore because he was a drug dealer in the area. We're 23, 24, he's 40, 41, he's been doing it for years. All of a sudden we're stepping on their toes. So John Moore, John Moore's grafters ended up standing on our toes and we've done what we normally do, pull them out the car, seriously hurt them, took the phones off them, and they've took that as an insult. So John Moore's popped up. So I'll tell you the story. Hmm. So I came into a lump sum of legit money anyway from my grandparents and I invested it into bricks and mortar. And just on the end of the Grysdale estate, I managed to get hold of the property, turned it into a cafe and a flat above it. And I was living in the flat, and I had the cafe underneath. And everyone used to come to the cafe and eat. All the local drug dealers used to come to the cafe and eat the dinner and breakfast and whatever. And on this particular, we'd already damaged this John Moores, grafters drug dealers. We've already pulled them out of the car, cut them, took the phones and stuff like that. This one morning I get a phone call off, of, off an old associate saying um, this Porky Moore's looking for you, because that's what they called him, Porky Moore, because he looked like a little fat pig. He said Porky Moore's looking for you. And as he's saying that, Porky Moore comes past me on the outside. So I come out the cafe, he's driving past, he pulls over. Now he must have been thinking I was going to um, go to bits and you know, crumble because of who he was, but he haven't. I've gone right round to the passenger seat, sat in the passenger seat of his car, and as I'm in the passenger seat of the car, he must have panicked because of just opened his door, sat in, he's dropped something, but I haven't let on that I've seen it. He started running his mouth off about respect and this, that, and the other. I was bowing down because I knew he'd had something in the car, but I haven't let on. I bowed down, got out the car, walked round to the driver's door as if I'm saying goodbye, and snatched the keys out the ignition. Then I've told my friend to get a blade out the cafe. He's brought it over, and I plunged him in the shoulder, slapped him up, and he screeched off. I'm gonna tell our Willie. So we thought not another. It's just another confrontation with another local drug dealer. Although they were old school, and they they basically they were the ones with the kilos, and you know, right and huge amounts of drugs and we'd fronted it if you like. So what's happened there is within a week or something I've had a phone call off Willie Moore. Right. But before before all this before all this Willie Moore's out of prison and he's come onto the Grisdale estate and he spoke to me and he's offered us this and he's offered us that. And and we've said, okay, we'll take a test there. We'll get back on you. But we never got back on him because we were remaining loyal to the other firm. Yeah. And he's took that as an insult as well. And that's why his brother put his grafters on our estate, you know, to step on the toes. So we get a phone call off Willie Moore, you disrespect my family, blah, blah, blah. Da, 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 da. And that was that. During this process, we're still having a bit of trouble with Michael Wright. And Michael Wright had an older brother called Joseph Wright. And Joseph Wright's drug dealing partner was Davy Regan. So mm-hmm. Davy Regan, Regan became the go-between. Between, you know, like the peace negotiator between the Wright mm-hmm. and us. So every time an incident happened, Davy Regan would be placed in the picture and go and talk to them, just try and calm it down, all that type of stuff. So we're moving along. Uh, one of one of the kids who's been around us for years, Craig Arrow Smith. This is all in the same period. Craig Arrow Smith. He's got he's he's got his wages. He's gone into town with his girlfriend. What when he's gone into town with his girlfriend, he's bumped into um, distant relatives of the right firm. They've got on a team. They've caused a little bit of trouble with him in the O Five One nightclub. He come out the O Five One nightclub and. Um, Craig, little lad, little Craig sent his beard on—not Craig Barth, but Craig Arrow Smith. He's put his girl in a taxi, and then had a confrontation with this group of lads. The group of lads have chased him to a hotel called the Adelphi, yeah. and on, on this side of the Adelphi, you've got a wall which is about four foot high, but on the other side of the wall, it's a hundred foot drop. So Craig's being getting chased, jumped over the wall, mm-hmm. and snapped his neck. So he's died. So we're all a bit destroyed off him dying. We've been to his funeral. We've been, you know, doing what you do. You go to the wake, you go to the funeral, you're burying. We've done, we've just went through that process. So I've, as we we're just chilling now, it's the day after the funeral. There's, there's we're in a the car, there's three of us in the car. Me, my youngest brother, Ian, and a lad called Michael, Rich, uh, Mark Richardson, he's lifed off now for the Michael Wright murder. So we're, there's three of us in the car and we go on to our estate. And as we go on to our estate, we see Craig, Craig Barker, the 18 year old kid yeah, just by himself on the estate. So we say, do you want to come with us? We're going for, we're going for a scran and that. So we get in the car and he was into his auto traders and he goes, look at this, look at this, look at this car identical to yours. We're in a galaxy Z 2.3 on a 52 plate and he showed us a galaxy 2.8 Gaia x on a 52 plate there was only one one number in the reds difference and it was like a more powerful car more luxurious you had um screens in the headrest where you could rig up a computer and he was going he was he, he sort of convinced me when you get it down when you get it down so when went you know what go and get this money for me got 10 grand Went to where the car was for sale in Southport. So the four of us have drove to Southport. Ended up purchasing this car for about £9,500. Me and Craig have jumped in the new Galaxy. And Ian and Mark have followed us behind him, And we've drove home to my Mars estate. Drove in the close. Parked the Tech up outside my mum's. And then left. In the new galaxy, to go to speak, and the reason we went to speak was to buy a computer, because this new car had screens and the headrest where you yeah. could look So we went to speak, bought uh, the computer. Adam mcdonald's A few hours later, my mum's rang me saying, "Come and get your washing." So my mum was doing me washing because I lived in the flat round the corner. We come in, went to my mum's. I've asked. At this moment, Craig's in the back with Mark playing on the new computer. I'm in the front with Ian. I've asked Craig to come into my mum's with me, and get these bags of washing. We've got the bags of washing, put them in the boots. Then I've said to Craig, you've been on there for an hour or two now. Swap seats. So Craig's got out the back seat and got into my seat, which was the passenger seat, because I was banned. Everyone knew me in the passenger seat. Now I'm in the back seat. We drive out coming out of our estate to do it right towards me flat where the cafe was. It's becoming dusk now on the 6th of April. And as we do that, there's a car face just in the side street with its lights off, but it's engine running. And my little brother goes, get on the Mondeo there with its lights off. So we were going to drive and I was going to follow us and do the deed, probably outside my gaff. But I've said slam it reverse. So now we're looking at the driver He's only got his face covered with his hand. So as we're looking at the driver, the back passenger door opens. So we're focused on the driver. The back passenger seat opens. The gunman was lying flat on the back seats and come out the car feet first. And when he's opened the back door, he's being crouched behind the back door so you couldn't see him. You could only see... The back door swing open. So Mm -hmm. as I've said, get on the back door. How the fuck's that just opened? He's popped out and let a shot off to the passenger window. The the bullet's gone through the passenger window. The ZTEC 2.3 that we left outside my mum's was an automatic. The new one was a manual. So when the bullets come through the glass, I've told my younger brother, put your foot down and get out of here. He's let the clutch out too fast and stalled on the spot. The gunman, this um, Darren Waterhouse, SAS-trained soldier, zigzagged up to the car, pounced on Craig, put his gun point blank to Craig's chest, and worked down the sternum, emptying the clip. Now, as Craig's taking them bullets, he's trying to get away from him. So he's going over the centre console where the handbrake and that is in the car, and he's ending up on Ian. So Craig's back is on Ian. All the the gunman's waist deep now. He's followed him, so Craig couldn't get away from him. All them bullets that's gone through him have come out of him and gone into me little brother. So he, he's done his deeds. I've had to open the back door. Gone to Ian's door, my younger brother, the driver's door. He's fell out. I've picked him up, put him on the back seat. Mark's already opened the door and ran away. He got one in the shoulder, but he's opened the he's opened the door and ran away from the scene. I've had to push Craig back over into the passenger seat, start the car and go towards the Liverpool Royal Hospital.
0: So as an So Craig Craig ends up being killed. Your brother's seriously wounded. How soon after that was the decision to go after David Regan?
1: Ten days later.
0: Ten days later, and you go after David Regan, and that was. Did you call the shot?
1: Yeah. So to, to get to that point of what happened, um, I've gone, I've got him in the hospital. He's died we're doing all, you know we're all i'm feeling responsible you know the, the gunman came for me i just swapped seats Craig's dead ian's in a coma i've come out of that royal hospital that night me head's gone i go back to another apartment he had in the city center i'm sitting there with two guns me weed intake went through the roof So I'm getting more paranoid and more suspect about anyone and everyone. Eventually, you know, I've got to go and see his mum, Craig's mum. She sent a gazebo up outside the family home, sitting in there. We're all thinking revenge, retaliation, but we didn't know who it was. Eventually, I get a phone call off William Moore what we've been through, blah, 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 that that kid shouldn't have been shot dead. David Regan was driving the car. And that's what put David Regan in the picture. Right. So we fast forward now to the 18th of May. So the 6th of April, Craig's shot dead. 10 days, two weeks later, we get the information that David Regan was driving for a week or ten days. We're letting them know that we know he was involved. Phone calls, threatening phone calls, turning up at his brother's house, you know, looking for them stuff like this. Yeah. Eventually I got the whereabouts of his business, which was a, a car wash business. Most drug dealers back in the day used to use them sort of businesses to launder the money. Yeah. So we found out where his business was a couple of days before. We went down and done a little recce on it. You know, had a little look around what route we were going to take. On the 18th of May, uh, we purchased a car. We just sent some smackhead down to purchase a car, just a little old car, a little escort. We'd also had another Galaxy. So obviously, we needed a firearm one of my mates dad ricky he was connected to the farleys we asked we asked ricky to speak to because they were involved in security then was at that time we've asked them for a firearm they give us a beretta with a silencer we've put the beretta with a silencer in the glove compartment of the escort that we purchased We'd left it at the bottom of the road, parked up for a few hours. Got a phone call saying David Regan is now at the car wash. So we've just left our estate, five of us, after discussing about, you know, we need to get in, we need to show them what, the da, da, da Craig's dead, we need someone to pay for it. We've ended up in the car, tandem, It's about quarter three in the afternoon on the 18th of may it's a nice sunny day We're, we we drive up everton road go down west derby road down truebrook do a right onto green lane end up on lower lower Kensington road prescott road and we do a right we come across the car wash it's on the left we see david regan's bmw he's he's sat in the front with his brother the gunman is in the Escort with the driver. I'm in the Galaxy with the driver and there was another car floating behind us, a theatre bath with someone else in it. We, we slam on outside the, the, the garage. The gunman jumps out with the Beretta. Let a shot off through the windscreen. David Regan gets out, starts running. The gunman pursues him and hits him three times in the back. And then he's dead. Two days later, I'm arrested for conspiracy, no, for murder. They couldn't charge me with the murder. I'm about to be released from custody. Uh, The girlfriend of David Regan made numerous statements that were untrue. I ended up getting charged with threats to kill. Went to court under armed guard with a helicopter and all this sort of stuff. Ended up in prison on the threats to kill. Six weeks later, they've come back and charged me with conspiracy to murder with persons unknown.
0: And that's that. And what did you do for that?
1: What, sentence?
0: Yeah, sentence.
1: So I got 18 years and done 12 for it. I weren't classed as the gunman. I was classed as a conspirator, someone who conspired with the unknown gunman.
0: And what happened to David Waterhouse, who was responsible for killing your friend Craig?
1: Darren Waterhouse and William Moore. What happened to them? They got convicted for a contract killing. Right, It was proven in court. And back in the day, a policeman being murdered or a contract killing by firearm, you'd ended up with thirty, thirty-five plus recommendations. So they ended up with thirty-five years each for contract right. I ended up with eighteen because the judge back in back in that time, pre two thousand and four, he could have given you a discretionary life sentence. Yeah. Or a long determinant for conspiracy to murder. Now yeah. it's 30 standard. Yeah. It's yeah, a recommendation, is it?
0: It's very different now.
1: But because we're I... in a threat to the public, you give me a long determinant sentence.
0: Darren, I could talk to you for hours and some fascinating stuff, but I'm conscious of time. I just want to cover a couple of other, other areas of real significance now. So you come out of jail. Uh, jail is a, you've, you've done a lot of time prior to that. But you come out of jail and for the very first time you realize, Do you know what? I've wasted my life. There are things that have happened in my life that I can't change, but I now have to deal with that. What was that moment that happened either in jail or when you came out that thought, this is not the life for me. I need to have a different life and I need to give a different message?
1: Well, you don't get the time to sit and contemplate where you got lost and when you're going into prison on little sentences, it is what it is. It's a lie down, you get an hour. But when you get a, when you get one with double figures, you've got enough time to really search your soul and see what the fuck's gone on with your life. And the fact that I lost my identity from an early age ended up with a group identity on the streets, and that just led me down a crazy path of crime. Once I was in custody. I didn't really give a a damn about victims i weren't really aware of the you know the consequences of your actions i went on to these offending behavior programs they just made you more um they made you more conniving they made you more aware of how to commit better crimes but then five years into my sentence he ended up in a prison and within that prison they had a charity-based course it was christian a Christian based course and was called the sycamore tree. I went on this sycamore tree and it was a proper eye opener. It explained the ripple effect. It, so from that moment on, that's when I decided to sort my head out and change my ways and start doing what I need to do. When I've been released from custody, I was under mapper 3 tier 4. Eventually, I end up back in my ma's estate. And when I've gone on to my mum's estate, the lads that were drug dealing before I went to prison were still drug dealing. I've witnessed a a young woman with a child in a pram getting saved cocaine at, at 10 o'clock in the morning. I was looking at the state of the place and it just really done me head in. And I thought, you know what? I can't just stand by and let what we started continue to rot this place. So I, I took a stance. Choose a life, not a knife came to me when I was on license due to self-harm. Choose a life, when I was on license, I was in a bad place. I was lonely. I couldn't couldn't go near anyone. I was in a house by myself in St. Helens. I was considering self-harming. And choose a life, not a knife popped up. It stopped me from committing suicide. And I sort of carried that message with me as a way of inspiring myself. So when I've landed in Liverpool, it's just ended up going down this path from knife crime, gun crime, drug dealers to organised crime groups. And I've just become very vocal on it.
0: So What's the biggest message that you would give? You know, there's young people out there and you've just talked about them now who are out there dealing drugs getting involved in knife crime, you know, gun crime, the escalation from one level to the other. What's that message that you would give to them? You've done it. You've been there. You've got the, you know, the, the tattoos, but you've also got the damage that it's caused. What, what's your message?
1: The message is choose a life, not a knife. Don't lose your identity to a group on the street outside your mum's house. Your mum's raising you in a certain way to protect you in the future. The How do we
0: stop that? How do you stop that? How do you stop that? Bearing in mind many of those young people who have now swallowed up and entering the life of crime come from a disturbed background. You know, many of them will have your background. You could look at take a lot of them, I'm sure, and you could you could look at it and go, Do you know what? That's the path that I was on. How do you stop that path?
1: You've got to make sure that they start re-identifying with themselves. I, I, I was saying last night to someone, you've got to look forward. You know, all these kids who are 13, 14, 15, they've been inspired by people like myself. Mm. So I inspired the next level of criminals. Them criminals have inspired what you're now in the streets mm. of Liverpool.
0: What How they, do you what, get them to listen to you now? Because you're right, they were following you how do you get them to still listen to you now and change their path
1: by being very very vocal and telling them what i know is happening so i can say to say in groups this is going on this is going on this is going on and because they know what i'm saying is going on they're more ready to listen to what i'm preaching right i've been here i've got the experience how many yeah. mates have you lost how many? How many of your mates are in prison? How many mates have got addictions? Are them older lads around your group using you? Are you only making five hundred pounds a week while he's making three grand a week? Are you being stupid? Do you know what you're gonna be doing is jail? Now that's the avenue I come from.
0: Right. I get it.
1: Drug deal, I drug deal, and, and the organised crime groups that manipulate the youth and groom the youth as if this is a boss lifestyle because you get cars. You've got to understand the long term traumatic events that you deal with later on. You don't, you know, they get the tolerance levels towards violence on these youth goes through the roof. The witnessing yep. situations, they lose and very close friends, and instead of dealing with the grief, the covering it by reacting in the same sort of violence mindset that the people that killed the friends done or used.
0: I want to talk, uh, we we need to, to come to an end, but I do want to talk about a recent high profile case. That is the murder of Olivia Pratt Corbell killed by thomas cashman cashman was uh, sentenced to 42 years in prison a killing when he was chasing another individual and he shot through the door and ended up killing olivia pratt he then left the scene assisted by other people what do you know about cashman
1: Well, as I say, when I got out of prison, I was screaming about organized crime groups and the damage that they're doing. And um, a certain group tried to kill me on the 17th of March, 2018. After three months of me being in Liverpool, they put the lad next to me in hospital. But it never stopped me. I continued to be very vocal about the damage that these individuals were doing. And then I started speaking about a certain group Cashman ran round for and intimidated people for and stuff like this. So when I started being vocal about that group, Cashman's contacted me. Right. So he's come to my place where I was living at the time, and he's there with his. He's, he's got his gun on him, and he's sat there, and he's not really threatening.
0: So he comes to your house with a gun, sat yeah. there, intimidating you.
1: I think he knew he couldn't, to be honest. But he he came there as if he was going to do something, whatever. He's asked me not to mention these lads' names. I've told him, tell them to stop fucking giving me shit and I'll stop giving them shit. And then he's left. And that was my... That's the first time I'd ever heard of him or ever become aware of him.
0: And Did you have dealings or awareness of him after that?
1: Just when it came... To the Olivia Pratt-Corbell murder within, within a day of that murder I'm getting people because that's what I because what I'm doing I'm getting certain individuals on the out, on the fringes of these groups they contact me with all information about certain gun murders in the city and I right. used to share that information on my fucking social media platforms you know, to expose the yeah. murders if you like so within a day of that, I'm getting told it's happened over this, and that's who's responsible. So I'm speaking about it instantly. Um, unfortunately for me, when the trial when the trial kicked in, I'd done a live feed, you know, about the mm. progress of the trial. Yeah. And the content I'd put out that night, Cashman and his um, legal team brought it into the courtroom and halted the case yeah i was contacted off the police speaking about contempt of court if it didn't take it down and all this and the last thing i wanted to do was let a dirty scumbag of a murderer be acquitted because i was dropping content but he is what he is he got what he deserved and there's loads of he's inspired another line of individuals that want to be the next. They don't want to be the next child killer in the city, but they want to be the next drug dealer that had everyone yeah. terrified. In People are scared.
0: Do you know, did you have any dealings with Dale Cregan? No, nope, never met him.
1: Met met his associates numerous times because of the prison of done. Yeah. But even, even the way, you know... Although he went to the extreme level, he was still a knobhead, just like Cashman. Mm. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. And when I said when I said earlier on, um, although they're only street dealers, they're ten times more violent than the business dealers.
0: Mm. It's, it's, Would you just? I've described Cashman in some of my reports of him as a, you know, the vile, but a coward in terms of his process. Would you describe, I mean, how would you describe Cashman?
1: I called him a coward from the get-go, mate. You know, oh. anyone that as so basically, Joseph Nee was a burglar. And what he burgled was cannabis crops. Cashman made a lot of money through cannabis and the reason he made a lot of money through cannabis is cause him and his associates were growing their own cannabis. So it was basically 90% profit for them. They, did, they weren't going to my man buying parcels off him and then mm. selling them on. They were growing crops, big crops worth hundreds of thousands of pounds for each grow. And Joseph me nee was the individual that was kicking doors in and robbing crops. He done in, that to Cashman.
0: And in terms of Cashman, there are lots of reports that Cashman has a hit out on him in jail. True.
1: He will have a hit on him, but it won't be because of um, what he's done to the young girl. It'll be done, it'll be because of what he's done to certain criminals. Whilst them criminals are in custody, and he's being conducting himself as if he's the new main man in the city, he's got up to certain violent incidents where fatalities may have happened, and the relatives or the bloodline of the victims in them incidents are all mm-hmm. residing in prison. So it's not a safe place for him.
0: Do you think he'll survive?
1: No, he's not cut out for jail.
0: Right,
1: he's not. He, he, he's not one of them he's not one of them young lads that's been in and out of prison all his life do you understand what i'm saying yeah, he's yeah. not yeah he's not that type of criminal he's got involved with a certain thing he's ended up thinking he's mad he's he's got a reputation of having a body count and mm. then once you've got that stigma you've got to keep it going so people don't take the piss like joseph needed now to, to to go for someone like joseph nee with a firearm just shows you the shit house mm-hmm. and then not not to take your punishments on the chin and go into court on the sentences day mm-hmm. that's a true example of a coward you know you've done your crime you've done the time get out there take it on the fucking chin listen to what you've done to the family and go and do your fucking jail
0: wise words down wise words so how do people follow you
1: and um, they just google my name i haven't I've, I've got instagrams i've got TikToks. i'm not on youtube although there's content of mine on youtube loads of it, it it's not my they're not my profile so I i'm not really after people to follow me I, you know i am i'm doing what i'm doing for the city of liverpool you know, I've got my platform so I can share the message of choose a life not a knife and encourage the youth to stay away from the gang culture and the drug dealing understand where that path is going to take them, mm. prison, trauma pain, family breakdown relationship breakdown, I'm not really interested in becoming I, I don't really. I'm not bothered to be honest so th- okay. if you want to follow me you just have to find me I'm not going to say there's a link or there's a site, no. it is what it is, if you want to be aware of what I'm doing
0: Come darren thank you so much for joining us you are fascinating i wish you well in your future i know times are hard and it's difficult with your background to get a job but please keep sending that message out there are people out there that need you and there are people out there even if it's one person that you can divert from crime way, then there's one person you know is the benefit so thank you so much for joining us darren take care
1: All right, sure, mate. have a nice evening
0: Brilliant. Well, that was Darren G. Darren G was jailed in 2006 for ordering the murder of 36-year-old David Regan, shot dead outside the old Swan car wash in May 2004. He served 12 years of an 18-year sentence, and having come out, he has changed his life. His attitude now is a very different one. This is a man who's been involved during his time in drugs at a low level he started using drugs at the very young age of 12, 13. And he says, and I totally agree, as a result of a total breakdown in domestic circumstances, where he had to not only see the violence against his mother, but then endure his own violence. He talked about being strapped to a bed and being beaten. In fact, it resulted in the end of his father throwing his mother out of a top for a second floor window, and breaking her back. A horrible man and of course the impact of that on a young person is always going to be seen and it led him into violence as well as the poverty and he created a band of brothers with his own brothers set on a path of crime and of course as a result of that he did get caught and he went to jail went to jail for a very long time he's now out and he is now spreading a word choose a life not a knife and I praise him for it. And it will be a hard task for him. There are people living within his community who are steadfast on committing crimes, see some value of that. But as a result of that, he is now focused on helping others. And I wish him well. I wish him the luck. And as I said to him just now, if there's one person that he diverts from a route of crime, then that is a benefit. He has served his you know, a justice sentence. He's served a great purpose and continues to serve a great purpose. So I wish him well and please do, you know, follow him and and give him as much support as you can so he tries to turn those people away from crime. Thank you again for following us and we'll be back very soon. Look after yourself until then and take care.